Former Speaker of the Ohio House Larry Householder was sentenced to federal prison last year for his role in the HB6 bribery scandal. So was the former chairman of the state GOP. Until this week, though, nobody from First Energy had faced charges. That changed when former CEO Chuck Jones, First Energy's external affairs boss Michael Dowling, and former Public Utilities of Ohio Director Sam Randazzo were indicted in Summit County on state charges. Welcome to the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable. I'm Mike McIntyre. The combined 27 felony counts raise further questions. Will federal charges be coming? And how did Governor Mike DeWine not know about Randazzo's financial relationship with First Energy before appointing him to be the state's utilities watchdog? Also on today's roundtable agenda, budget cuts for Cleveland Public Schools, a visit to East Palestine by President Biden, and local colleges are pushing back enrollment deadlines due to troubles with federal student aid. We begin right after the news. It's the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable from IdeaStream Public Media. I'm Mike McIntyre. Thank you for joining us. The former CEO of Akron-based First Energy and another top executive pleaded not guilty in court this week after being indicted on state felony charges in Summit County. The two execs and the former chair of the state's utility regulator were charged in the bribery scandal tied to the passage of House Bill 6, the nuclear bailout bill. The new CEO of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District says deep cuts must be made to balance the district's books. The end of federal pandemic money has left a big financial gap. More than a year after a train derailed spewing toxic chemicals, President Biden will make his first visit to East Palestine later today. And West Virginia's Joe Manchin isn't explicitly saying he will make an independent run for the presidency or seek a floor nomination at the Democratic National Convention. But in Cleveland and Columbus this week, he said everything's on the table. Joining me to talk about all of that and a whole lot more in studio, IdeaStream Public Media supervising producer for newscasts, Glenn Forbes. Good morning, Glenn. Morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. And health reporter Taylor Wisner. Hey, Taylor. Hey, happy to be here. Happy to be happy to have you here and happy Friday as well. And in Columbus, State House News Bureau Chief Karen Kassler. Hello there, Karen. Hey, good morning. Good to have you with us. We don't take calls on the Friday Roundtable. We do, though, take your thoughts via email. So send them to soi at ideastream.org. You can find us on X, formerly Twitter, at Sound of Ideas. Go ahead and get in touch with us that way. I'll pull my phone out now so I have access to it and make sure that we get you involved in the conversation. All right, let's get ready to Roundtable. State felony charges were filed this week in the HB6 corruption scandal. HB6, the nuclear bailout bill, greatly benefited First Energy. Indictments were handed down against former First Energy CEO Chuck Jones, former Vice President of External Affairs Michael Dowling. A Summit County grand jury also indicted former Public Utilities Commission of Ohio Chairman Sam Rendazzo. The three men pleaded not guilty in court, posted $10,000 bonds, and all have to have GPS tracking systems. They're ordered not to leave Ohio. Karen, Attorney General Dave Yost, in announcing the indictments, said they were the check writers and masterminds behind the bribery scheme, and they needed to be held accountable. Uh, how does he say the scandal worked? Well, this these state charges continue the story that was told with the federal case, which, of course, was a trial last year, two trials actually, for Larry Householder, the former Republican Speaker of the Ohio House, and Republican Party Chair, former Republican Party Chair Matt Borges. They were convicted on federal racketeering charges. Householder's in prison for 20 years. Borges is in prison for five. And their part of the scheme was that there was money that came from First Energy to House soldiers so he could build a team, pass House Bill 6, the nuclear power plant bailout bill that had a billion dollars in subsidies from all Ohio ratepayers 
to help these two nuclear plants owned by a First Energy subsidiary. And Borges was then convicted of trying to keep that from ballot so voters couldn't repeal it. So that's one part of it. Then First Energy has admitted to bribing Householder and Randazzo. Randazzo was the head of the Public Utilities Commission, the state's utility regulator. He was charged in December with federal charges related to all this. On the state charges, this is the first time we've seen charges against former uh, First Energy CEO Chuck Jones and former Senior Vice President for External Affairs Michael Dowling. And they're accused of paying the money to the the bribe to Randazzo, $4.3 million. And then Randazzo was accused of working for First Energy from inside the government as the PUCO chair. So this didn't seem to be in doubt, although obviously they've pleaded not guilty. Their lawyers say there's a whole lot more to the story. But when we saw First Energy say, yep, we bribed uh, these people. And uh, and then when you look at documents that say who at First Energy would have been the people involved in that, the CEO and the top lobbyist, it seems like those dots connect. What what are we hearing then from the defendants about why they believe there's no basis for an indictment and there's no guilt here? Well, they've been saying in various situations that they've done nothing wrong. I mean, Chuck Jones was on a First Energy earnings call right after the scandal broke in June 2020 saying, that, that we are cooperating fully. And First Energy has said all along that they are cooperating fully. And you saw that with the deferred plea agreement that they reached in 2021, where they admitted to bribing Householder and Randazzo and paid a $230 million fine. And the question's always been, who actually authorized those bribes? If First Energy bribed somebody, well, who actually authorize those. And the state charges say that that blame lies squarely with Chuck Jones and Michael Dowling and that Sam Randazzo not only accepted the bribes, but also he's accused of setting up shell companies so that he could skim payments off of the existing clients he had to benefit himself. Mike, Mike Shearer, who's the editor of the Columbus Dispatch, wrote in an editorial this week, you know, what has taken so long for reform, first of all? And secondly, we're now a year later and there are no felony charges from the federal side on this and ended up having to be a state thing. There's been a lot of question about that, where you have a company that says we bribe somebody, but yet nobody in the company was held accountable. It now come down to a Summit County grand jury to do that. And I think in the federal system, it does take a while. But the, of course, there is the, the question. I mean, it's going to be four years in June from the arrests of Householder, Borges, and all the other folks who were arrested. And two of the people who were arrested were cooperating with investigators and with federal prosecutors. And of course, First Energy had that deferred plea agreement. And there was a plea agreement for Generation Now, a dark money group that was involved here. But these things do take time if you're trying to build a case that's strong with a lot of complicated evidence and a lot of moving parts. I mean, when you think about the Randazzo charges in particular, he's accused of setting up companies going back years and years. This this whole potential thing goes back many years, even before 2019, when House Bill 6 was actually put forward. Here was an interesting development that happened as this indictment was being rolled out. $4.3 million was paid to Randazzo by First Energy before he was appointed the state's utility watchdog. And the chief of staff of Governor Mike DeWine had testified that she knew about that. And the question then becomes, what does the governor know about it? I know that question was put to him yesterday. I know that he answered it and said, I knew nothing about it. But there are a lot of people that are saying, how is it possible that your chief of staff would know and you didn't? What kind of process do you use to appoint somebody to such a high position? 
And I think he's been asked that several times and has said before, hey, we knew that Sarandazzo worked for First Energy, but we didn't know that there was a payment, certainly a payment of this size. And Randazzo has said that that payment was the closure of a consulting agreement, which when you think about it, a $4.3 million consulting agreement, that's a lot of money for a consulting agreement, but it, it apparently didn't raise any red flags at the time. So, of course, the question does become, did the the chief of staff make a mistake in not telling DeWine, or is DeWine telling us the truth and saying he didn't know? He says now, if we had known, we would not have, we, his staff, would not have gone ahead with the appointment of Sam Randazzo to head the Public Utilities Commission. So he's saying now, at least, if I'd known all the facts, I would not have appointed him to that position. The the big key here is you use the word we, and then you use the word I. If it's I, that means the governor didn't know. But when he says we... The testimony by his chief of staff was she did know. Yeah, and I, I think sometimes in government we hear people going back and forth between we and I, and and I, I think when you start looking at words really carefully like that, you do have questions, of course. But And I think this is one of the things that is going to work itself out through some of the trials here. I mean, the great thing about this, as opposed to federal charges, is we will actually be able to potentially see what's going on here in Summit County Court when these trials go forward, if they do, if there aren't plea deals that are working. Worked out, so we might find out some more information about that. But I'm I, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not sure that not telling the governor about this payment is illegal, but it certainly doesn't look good. Glenn, First Energy paid two hundred thirty million dollars, as uh, as Karen said. They entered a deferred prosecution agreement. That all happened in twenty twenty one. Now we hear the Akron Beacon Journal reporting the new round of indictments and all of that are raising questions about the company's future in Akron. Yeah, there is some concern about that, particularly if First Energy is sold. Uh, That comes from Chuck Kuyper, executive director of the Northeast Ohio Public Energy Council. That's for you, Mike. That stands for NOPEC. Thank you. Yes. Um, That's basically what he's saying. Listen, if First Energy is sold, multiple state interests could be broken into some pieces. Some could not only leave Akron, but Ohio. He calls it a valid concern. That's what he told the Akron Beacon Journal. And beyond that, we have... uh, uh, First Energy already announcing that they were going to sell their 19-story office tower uh, down to, uh, in downtown Akron. That announcement came in January. Energy Harbor, a spinoff company of First Energy, uh, they're going to merge with Texas-based Vistra, and they're going to relocate their headquarters from East Market Street on Akron down to Texas. So we've seen, I don't want to call them dominoes because we don't know if they're all going to fall, but we've seen some of these pieces kind of moving, just like in the case, right? We've seen some of these pieces of First Energy kind of moving around, and that is causing concern uh, for the people in Akron. Meanwhile, Karen, people are still paying uh, as a result of this legislation, this HB6 resolution. what am I legislation. Legislation. Thank you. <laughs> Resolution. Legislation. Uh, my goodness. I know. <laughs> uh, the nuclear bailout portion uh, would have paid a billion dollars over 10 years to First Energy. That's been repealed, but we're still paying for coal subsidies as part of that bill. Yeah, the this House Bill 6 was huge, and the indictment alleges that Sam Randazzo wrote part of it, and which is an interesting thing to consider in and of itself. Not only does this affect First Energy, but all these other areas as well. I mean, it really stripped and, and gutted uh, energy subs, or, um, en- uh, renewable energy policy and, and energy efficiency programs, and it also allowed for subsidies for two coal-fired power plants, one of which is in Indiana, the other's in southern Ohio. The 
the one in southern Ohio is in the district of House Speaker Jason Stevens. And so there have been no movements lately to try to repeal House Bill 6. But Ohioans are still paying, I think it's like $200 million, $300 million so far for subsidies for these two coal-fired power plants. Got a question from Jonathan. This will wrap up this part of our conversation. Jonathan asked, does anyone have a sense of whether the former First Energy officials will face federal charges? Or is Sam Randazzo the only additional federal defendant, possibly? (laughs) I don't think the federal case is over. I mean, the federal prosecutors have always told us the case continues, and it it has been taking time. So it would not surprise me at all if charges do come from federal prosecutors, but obviously there's no clue right now. All right. We got Karen on the case. And by the way, if you want her to be a consultant, it is well over $4.3 million (laughs) for her services. Don't leave journalism. You'll be rich, but we'll miss you. Speaking of, Mike, that $4.3 million and did he know, uh, Governor DeWine, did he know, didn't he know, doesn't that remind you of college football in the days before uh, name, image, and likeness? It's like, tell them what you know, but don't tell me what you know. I don't. In some cases, I don't want to know. And that was a line from Jim Trestle, who I love, who will always be the coach at Ohio State to me. But you know what I mean. It's, yeah. it's just that when big money is involved, so, there seems to be mechanisms in place to make sure the big guy doesn't. And in, in fact, Karen, let me let me just jump yeah. in on that too. In that, in that, some of the one of the stories that I read about this had the folks from First Energy basically saying, you know, you got to talk to Mike Dewine like he doesn't know what you're talking about, even though he might. Yeah, and I was actually just going to bring that up, and it's interesting that there were handwritten notes that were part of this indictment, and there were photos of the handwritten notes saying, don't write any of this down, which is just kind of... <laughs> do not write below this do line. Not, okay. Do not write down, but sure, take a <laughs> screenshot of this. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, that that whole... That, that, and that's a really interesting point here, because you're talking about people who obviously knew... Governor DeWine knew other people involved, and yet there were specific instructions on how to talk to him about this. It's just it's really interesting. All right. We're going to move on to a local story now. The Cleveland Metropolitan School District needs to make tens of millions of dollars in cuts in order to reach a balanced budget. The district says it's facing a hundred and forty three million dollar deficit at the end of the next school year. The end of federal pandemic relief funds is partly to blame, according to the district. Taylor, what type of cuts are we talking about here from the district? Yeah, so my colleague, Connor Morris, our education reporter here at IdeaStream, was on a call earlier this week with the CEO, Warren Morgan, who was talking about just this big deficit that um, we have to make up by the by this year. Um, they have to present a balanced budget. And so some of the things they're looking at cutting are those after-school programming um, uh, programs that uh, really grew during the pandemic. Um, now, these are programs that aren't... Uh, aren't run by the district, but, but they're partners. Um, so, uh, you know, Warren uh, Morgan is, is really saying that he's trying to keep the cuts away from the classroom, so no teacher cuts um, as, as much as he can, and um, uh, no academic uh, programming cuts. So, you know, those typical after-school programs that the district runs will stay, he says. Um, and some other things he's looking at cutting is the summer programming um, that also grew during the pandemic, uh, but he says they're still funding it pretty well, better than even before the pandemic times. So, uh, and then a couple other things. I think the central office uh, admin level—they're looking at cuts of about 25 positions. He's going to appoint 
um, people at, at the various departments to kind of determine where they can make those cuts. And then the teacher contracts this year um, are going to be negotiated. And so he's looking at that, you know, those margins are going to squeeze. Teachers Union said it was happy that he was leaving the cuts at the classroom door and not going inside. On the other hand, they're going to have to negotiate a contract so that maybe that that piece doesn't last quite as long. You did hear a lot of reaction, too, from groups that are pushing for these after-school programs and how necessary they are, not just for educational enrichment, but to keep kids safe. And so they're talking about, okay, we're going to try to go out and get some other funding. And to that point, Glenn, the CEO says the cuts would be enough to give financial stability, but taxpayers may be asked to step in here and help with that. Well, when is that not the case, Mike? I mean, eventually <laughs> the taxpayers are always asked to help. But, but I mean, I'll say this. So, so what Warren Morgan said was this is a multi-year process. We've got to think about the challenges we have. What resources do we need to pull? Do we need additional funding? And, of course, where would that come from? It would, it would have to come from, from the taxpayers. But, you know, the other thing about this is um, I think most people in this position have kind of learned their lesson, right? You leave it open. You don't say, no, we're not going to put a levy on the ballot, because then when you turn around and have to put a levy on the ballot, people are going to say, you you lied. You told us we, right. we weren't going to have a levy. Now here's this levy on the ballot. So certainly a possibility. I, I mean, I think it always is with school districts, right, or any kind of government entity. Um, but it is possible that uh, there could be another uh, big levy in future years. Not right now, uh, but possibly in the future. Made big news when Mackenzie Scott gave, the philanthropist, gave $20 million to the district. I suppose you can't go back and ask for $120 million more to close the, the gap. But at the time, that was supposed to be sort of the money we wouldn't have had for stuff we'd love to do but can't do. And uh, now it looks like that's not how the district is going to use that money. Right. I mean, I suppose you always could go back and ask for $120 million. Um, may not like the answer that you get. Yeah. And as you said, this was going to be originally the money was going to be for like, you know, helping students get their driver's license or field trips or, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the the Cleveland Schools Board uh, several months ago adjusted that language to allow the district to use the money for more uh, general purposes. Now, some have criticized that, again, you know, for kind of going back on their word. Um, but, you know, the money is the money. And if you need it for stuff, you know, that that's not some of these extras uh, and all that. Uh, you may have to, but so the board recognized that and they have uh, approved a, a kind of a repurposing of this money so they can use it where needed rather than maybe where wanted. And some other changes too, Taylor, is that a lot of these programs, some of them, even school nurses, were slotted under that pandemic money. That's how mm -hmm. they got paid for. And what Warren Morgan is saying is long term and structurally, we need to move that under the budget where it isn't this extra windfall because the windfall is going away. Yeah, it's sort of just a rearranging of funds, right? Some were misallocated, it seems. Um, you know, that, that pandemic money was a real boon. You know, it really helped us do these things for the schools that we kind of have been wanting to do. And then, you know, but, you know, obviously that money <laughs> isn't going to last forever. So, um, yeah, you know, Warren Morgan is really talking about, you know, going back to the beginning, looking at the budget and then making sure that, you know, the things that are that are going to go away, you know, aren't impacting the general fund, the, the general things we need to fund. So. Let's talk about some other big money, and I'm talking about billions here. I don't know if it would last forever, but we're projecting out at least 42 years for the tax increment finance district in Cleveland. And City Council and Mayor Justin Bibb appeared to have reached an agreement and a compromise over how much from that proposed 
TIF will go to neighborhoods. We told you last week about Bibb's proposal. It's called Shore to Core to Shore, and it's intended to divert taxes to the city for development of Cleveland's waterfront and downtown. But the proposal hit a snag when Council President Blaine Griffin suggested that half the money raised would need to be earmarked for neighborhoods and immediately. We talked about that last week. The two, though, announced yesterday they're in lockstep on a different plan where downtown is addressed first. So let's start with that, Glenn. Griffin and Bibb issued a joint statement saying 35% of the excess would go to neighborhoods. Do we have any idea what that terminology means, 35% of the excess? Well, so originally Griffin wanted that money for the neighborhoods coming off the top. So now what it seems like is, you know, Bibb is saying this isn't going to work unless we take the money and reinvest in downtown. Um, You know, you've heard previous administrations talk about this too, right? The idea that we've got to put money into the things that make money and in order to get more money, right? So Bibb's whole thing is uh, we need to put the money into the uh, entertainment districts, the waterfront things. We need to do that first, and then the excess money, 35% of that, can go to the neighborhoods. Griffin's proposal was to peel that off the top as much as 50%. And of course, now with this announcement, that looks much less likely and perhaps, you know, that proposal could be dead. It seems like this might be an education for the council about how a TIF works, because you can say, give us half the money as if it's just this one pot of money. But Mayor Bibb said in a statement, the TIF district will only work if we make upfront investments to transform the waterfronts and grow the downtown, which means we need to preserve flexibility to access all funding sources. Basically, where the money comes in is as you make development, then those taxes continue to pour into the TIF district, and it's it's a multiplier on itself. If you don't start with that, then the, then the dividends don't come. And that's where the 42 years comes in, right? I mean, it's like, well, 42 years, you know, how do you get that number? for? Uh, I'm not sure why they used, didn't use 40 or 45 or whatever, but the, the point is is that this is a long-term play, and in order to get this, they're talking between 3.3 and $7.5 billion over this next uh, 42 years. The, the idea of the long-term play is you have to keep reinvesting in what is making you money. And if you want, and and this argument happens all the time, whenever uh, development is talked about in Cleveland, whenever there's a new uh, stadium or or an arena or anything like that, it's how much money is going to the neighborhoods which need it versus how much is going to you know, the developers, right, who on paper don't need it. But then the other argument is, like I said, those things make money. So we need to put money into the things that make money. Speaking of developers, one of the ideas floated in uh, the press release yesterday was the idea that developers would have to pay community benefits agreements, essentially to pour into a fund that would help the neighborhoods. If you want to build something, you've got to agree to give 10 or $20 million or whatever it might be toward another project. That's another way they're saying the neighborhoods could benefit more immediately. And you see these in the in those kind of agreements that they have made with, with arenas and you know sports facilities in the past is X amount of jobs have to go to Cleveland residents. X amount have to go to minorities or however they, however they draw that up. And Griffin is talking about uh, public improvements in neighborhoods to, to spur continual and necessary progress. He's talking about Lee Harvard, Central, Collinwood, Cam's Corners, uh, you know, neighborhoods like that. And it's kind of like, you know, the, the same idea. We, we want continuous improvement. We want continuous development, not only in the downtown area, but also in the neighborhoods. And I think what really spurred on this agreement is the fact that there seems to be some sort of fear or trepidation that 
they don't know how long this window is going to be open to secure this funding. So rather than get nothing and continue to fight about it, they they figured out this compromise just basically by saying, hey, we need this money anyway. We don't know how long the federal funding is going to be available. We better get on the same page here. It's one thing to say that, but when you start to then try to explain to people in neighborhoods why they're seeing a shiny downtown and they're not getting anything yet and the wait your turn part, well, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I do want to note, too, that when you do a tax increment financing plan, you do plow money back into the downtown core in order to do this development, but that money would have gone somewhere else, and those taxes would have fund, they exempt the Cleveland schools, and we've talked about their financial woes, but they don't exempt the health and human services levy for the county, nor is the county library exempted. So those are two organizations uh, that will not receive funding that would have been tax funding. The answer to that from the city is essentially rising tide lifts all boats. As we develop downtown, eventually more uh, happens for these uh, organizations. Yeah, I mean, you've certainly heard that argument made by the city quite a bit that as Cleveland uh, you know, develops and as Cleveland generates more tax revenue, this is the core of the county, the county offices are here, county seat, you know, all that stuff, that that will help. Now, interestingly enough, a couple weeks ago, uh, the uh, safety committee on county council was talking about how the city is not doing their job when it comes to uh, patrolling downtown and the police uh, force because the the, the sheriff, uh, who's a former Cleveland police deputy chief, the now sheriff of Cuyahoga County, has a special detail for downtown and Cuyahoga County Council saying, wait a minute, this is $12 million or so more than we thought more than we have budgeted, what's the city of Cleveland doing to help? So it'll be interesting to see how all of this works. It's another, you know, big money play where you're going to have to shuffle things around here and there. But, yeah, it's that's, that's the city's position and has been the city's position that as Cleveland goes, you know, the, as, you know, the county goes as well. Final thought here, and that's a question from Daryl. She says, uh, he says, sorry, can someone define what helping the neighborhoods mean? So specifically, what Blaine Griffin is talking about is development in these neighborhoods, correct? Yeah, it's, but it's all vague, right? I mean, the statement itself was, was pretty vague. Um, community benefits, like we talked about that, the developers would deliver yeah. an unspecified windfall for these neighborhoods. So Utilities, uh, uh, all those aging infrastructure issues, those right. are types of things that you see happen downtown and maybe don't happen in a particular neighborhood. And, and we have seen this model before. What does it mean for jobs? What does it mean for investment in these neighborhoods? It's again, there is some precedent for this. Uh, they'll they'll draw something up that uh, probably won't make everybody happy, but that's the that's the nature of compromise, right? Right. Daryl, thank you for the question. And we are now going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the president's scheduled trip today to East Palestine. And three months after a deadly ch- charter bus crash, Ohio rolls out new technology to make highways safer. This is the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable. I'm Mike McIntyre. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable from IdeaStream Public Media. I'm Mike McIntyre, along with Taylor Wisner and Glenn Forbes from IdeaStream, and Statehouse News Bureau Chief Karen Kassler with us as well in Columbus. 
President Joe Biden will travel to East Palestine later this afternoon. It's his first visit to the Columbiana County Village since the train derailed there in February, spilling uh, February of last year, spilling a dangerous combination of chemicals, including vinyl chloride. The derailment contaminated the soil and water and forced thousands from their homes. The president drew heavy criticism for not visiting in the year after the derailment. GOP frontrunner Donald Trump paid a visit. Biden did send Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Biden plans to visit the site of the derailment today, meet with residents and first responders as well. Glenn, residents say they want specific action from Biden, and specifically they want a federal major disaster declaration. Why, what's important about that? It just, it, you know, it opens up uh, more funding possibilities when you get that disaster declaration. Um, it just basically unlocks, you know, more of these funds, opening up the doors to federal support. Uh, now, according to Unity Council for the East Palestine Train Derailments, Jamie Wallace, she says right now Norfolk Southern is not taking care of us. So when does our government step up and take care of us? So I should mention Ideastream Public Media's Abigail Botar, who's been all over the story and has a uh, an updated version of this story up on Ideastream.org. So uh, definitely go check that out. But, yeah, I mean, this is an interesting set up here for, for a couple different reasons because another key quote in this article um, it, from Wallace is as long as he's coming in to take action I'm glad that he's coming but if he's just coming here to tell us what he's done for us and how our needs have already been met he might as well stay home so the White House says Biden is going to is not they did not say if he was going to announce any further actions. He does plan to highlight the work his administration has already done yeah, and, and listen to residents' concerns. So this some, could be interesting. Some of the action he's done is he did put someone in charge of uh, from FEMA in charge of uh, yep. federal stuff, but he didn't declare it this major disaster, and that's mm-hmm. what they want. So it's not. It's like okay, yeah, we know you did that. Here's right. what we want you to do, and right. can you answer to that? I think politically this is interesting too, because agree with it or not. There has been undoubtedly more uh, media coverage on Joe Biden, the, the report uh, about his, his memory issues and things like that. We've seen or misspeaking or misspeaking. We've, we've seen more of his uh, stumbles that is getting more and more attention. And so politically, this comes at an interesting time for Biden, especially when you have the local residents saying, don't come here and tell us what you've done. And the White House is saying he's going to talk about what the administration yeah. has already done. Meanwhile, the mayor of East Palestine is the one who invited him. And so he's coming and saying, well, the reason I'm coming now is I got an invitation. But the question politically, too, is why more than a year later? visit because doesn't it highlight the fact that you hadn't been there in 12 months it it does um now trent conaway who is the mayor of east palestine is a conservative he is not a a supporter of biden but he did invite him saying the visit will be good um for the community and i think that they're hoping that this will spur on um that federal disaster declaration so there's a lot of kind of moving parts here but that's a good point i mean we're more than a year later i mean this was february 3rd third, I believe, of right. last year. So, you know, I think that does open the door a little bit for some criticism. But I think, you know, again, politically, the strategy might be better late than never. Um, maybe they are going to unveil some some new news or something uh, that they think the community wants to hear. Otherwise, you know, what what is what is the benefit other than that idea that it's it's better to be there late than never? 
All right, and Abigail, by the way, is in East Palestine today, so we'll have coverage. The president's expected to land this afternoon in Pittsburgh and then make his way to East Palestine. Uh, the city does listen to our program, so I've got a, a note from Marie, who works in oh, good. the mayor's office, who said a note to Glenn's question. The 42-year term is because there's overlap. Some of the existing TIFs have another 12 years. The new tax instrument financing uh, extension is a term of 30 years, so that's where it goes. Ask and you shall receive. There you go. Thank you, Marie. Appreciate that information. Moving on to a college issue that a whole lot of parents, I'm sure, are pulling their uh, hair out over, and students as well, potential students. Some Northeast Ohio universities and colleges are now pushing back enrollment deadlines due to ongoing issues with the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, or FAFSA, form. The form underwent a major overhaul from the U.S. Department of Education. It's encountered delays in its rollout, and FAFSA is the main gateway for federal financial aid for students. Anyone who's ever sent a kid to college knows what a great form it is and how terrific it is oh, to fill yeah. all of that out. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> and Glenn's a little more recent than me, but uh, and you it's as a well, lot of Karen, fun. you're in the midst of it. I but, make my wife do it. She's much better at okay, filling make, out paperwork. Okay, very good. <laughs> Sorry. In the meanwhile, though, we have uh, the problems with the form. It changed. Is it better? Is it worse? What it is is later. And so now these schools, Taylor, uh, are handling that by saying, all right, we're just going to push back some of our deadlines. Yeah, yeah. The typical May 1st deadline is now June 1st for a couple of universities here in Northeast Ohio, Kent State University and Youngstown State University being two of those. Uh, yeah, they say it's a huge headache for them, too, because, um, you know, you know, they're worried about students, you know, making that decision and, and feeling pressured by other schools that haven't moved their deadlines um, and, and so potentially losing out on those students. So um, I know, uh, um, uh, what was the other school? Uh, well, Baldwin-Wallace also said they're extending their deadlines, um, but schools uh, like Case Western Reserve University, they say they look at uh, their college admissions uh, and financial aid packages differently. They don't rely as much on the FAFSA form, so they're not moving their date. So, you know, you really look into what schools you're applying to and make sure you get those deadlines right. Karen, it sounds like you've got some experience with this, and when it comes to filling out FAFSA, how can a kid decide where he's going to go to school until he finds out what kind of financial aid he's going to get? I mean, seriously, it's it's just, it's it's almost a catch-22 at this point, and, and we are in the middle of February. We parents need to start making plans and figuring out what's going on. So this has been very frustrating. The whole process has been, and, you know, I'm only going to do this once. So what I'm learning this time is just, uh, I'm glad I don't have to remember it later. Right. By the way, I use the pronoun he, because we're talking about your son, but obviously he, yes. everybody uh, is, is going through this whole uh, situation. Yeah. Uh, it's a national complaint, I think. <laughs> all right. We will, um, we'll keep an eye on that. And Karen, good luck. Oh, definitely. <laughs> uh, Ohio is installing advanced camera monitoring systems across the state in a ramped up effort to reduce serious crashes, especially rear end crashes. The governor unveiled the new system on I-70 in Licking County, where three students and three adults traveling with the Tuscarawas Valley Marching Band died last November when a truck rear ended an SUV and the band's charter bus as the traffic slowed down in front of it. So, it's interesting because today, as Lee Barr was coming into work from down south, uh, I-77 North was closed at Gent Road, and so she had to get off and make her way in, and there was a sign that told her that it was closed. But that was because it was way up in advance, and somebody from ODOT typed that into a computer that 
appeared on the sign. What this system would do would use cameras and make that an automatic thing. Traffic is slowing. Let's let people know in time so that they can get their foot on the brake. Yeah, it's basically an early warning system. I mean, it looks at right now there's 13 areas it's looking at that it determines are susceptible to these congestion area situations and that can lead to these kind of chain reaction crashes. And it puts up a message to drivers that are approaching this that, hey, there is this accident coming up and you know, this is something to be aware of. So hopefully people will read those messages. These are the same billboards, of course, that everybody talked about. That they were reading, you know, for the, all the funny messages and everything. Well, the, now there's some more serious messages coming here that people hopefully will be able to read and slow down so that you don't end up with these rear end crashes and in all in, in a row. And Glenn, where are we going to see these? Well, there's going to be three here in Northeast Ohio, uh, one or two rather in Cuyahoga County, 90 West, East 55th, the State Route 2 split. That's known as the Interbelt Curve, uh, State Route 176 North, south of Denison to the 7190 merge that's known as the Jennings. And then in Summit County, Route 8 at Howe Avenue, also six in Central Ohio and four in Southwest Ohio. Those are the first 13 locations. And as Karen pointed out, they have they pick those based on the data, according to Governor DeWine, that these are the most likely places to have serious rear end crashes. So that's how they determined where they were going to put these. And they determined that because they do have a wide network of cameras. I mean, you can actually go online and see cameras that are on freeways throughout the state. And so they can scan these cameras and those cameras then alert the system that there is this problem coming up, this congestion coming up and then send that message to the billboard. All right, so we'll see how that works, and certainly anything that can enhance safety is good. Also, distracted driving is something that is a damage to safety, and this coincides, Karen, with the new distracted driving laws. Yeah, this is something that uh, DeWine has talked about a lot in terms of getting a law in place to try to combat distracted driving. So these signs and these messages on billboards only work if you're reading them and not looking at your phone or something else. So that's a big part of this. All right, we've got to take another quick break right here, and then we'll come back and round out the round table in a kind of a, a lightning round. That's a lot of rounds in one sentence. Anyway, we are going to have a lightning round on the round table when we come around from this break. Uh, and what we'll talk about, one of the things, will be Cuyahoga County opening a welcome center to provide resources for newcomers, especially immigrants and refugees. So do stay tuned. It's the Sound of Ideas. I'm Mike McIntyre. Good to have you back on the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable from Ideastream Public Media. Mike McIntyre, Karen Kassler, Glenn Forbes, Taylor Wisner, that's the lineup. And we're going to talk about a bunch of other news now. First of all, I mentioned this earlier before the last break. We didn't get to it yet, so we'll start this break with it, or this segment with it. Early voting for the March primary begins next week. You won't see West Virginia's Joe Manchin anywhere on the ballot, but will he make a third-party bid for the presidency or seek to steal the nomination at the Democratic Convention? Manchin spoke at the City Club of Cleveland and the Columbus Metropolitan Club yesterday. He said he's not running for president. He's promoting Americans Together, a political organization he founded to raise money for moderate candidates. But speculation about his possible plans to run were front and center. And Karen, he didn't exactly say there's no possible way I could ever run. In fact, in a scrum with reporters after the Cleveland event, he said anything's possible. Yeah, and I asked him pretty directly, because I moderated the event here in Columbus, why are you doing this? Why are you in Cleveland and you're going to be in Michigan next week? You're in New Hampshire earlier. Why are you doing this? Are you running for president? And he said, no, he's not running for anything. The purpose of him coming around, he says, is 
not because he's running. He wants to talk about this group that Mm -hmm. he wants to try to mobilize the middle and and get moderates engaged, which a lot of people have tried to do and talked about doing. And it's it's right now very difficult. Uh, This group, Americans Together, it's a dark money group that is being run by his daughter, who you might remember was a pharmaceutical executive involved in the uh, huge cost of the uh, uh, EpiPens. You might recall her name from that. And uh, so I asked him, he's talked about campaign finance reform and he believes in transparency. And I said, so you're running this dark money organization. Ohioans are a little concerned about dark money organizations right now. Are you going to disclose your donors? And he said, we will when everyone else does. So that's that's a little bit frustrating to know that he says that this is what this group is going to do. And he says that dark money groups do have a particular purpose, but he's not talking about who the donors are, which has been one of the concerns about no labels. Another dark money group he's been uh, associated with that has also talked about doing a presidential ticket, but has a lot of Republican donors that are reported to be involved. Okay, so he says he's not running for president, but he's going on a national listening tour. So clearly he's finding out whether he should run for president. Yeah, and he he even admitted, though, that a third party presidential campaign, it it hasn't worked ever. And so it would be an uphill battle. He'd like to eventually see a third party candidate. But obviously, with just, what, nine, ten months till the election, this is not the time to talk about a third party. All right. Just one more quick answer to this. And if he were to do some sort of thing like jumping in as an independent candidate, most people look at that and say that's bad for Joe Biden. Yeah, he did say that he will not vote for Donald Trump, but he said he's still undecided on Biden, which right there, that message can send a different message to different people. The idea of I'm not going to vote or I'm going to vote for a third party candidate, those two things in a binary system, don't look good for the candidates who are on the ballot, especially the incumbent who's trying to get reelected. All right. Cuyahoga County is looking to become a welcoming place for newcomers, immigrants, refugees. In the old Brooklyn neighborhood of Cleveland, a welcome center was opened this week. Taylor, Cuyahoga County leaders say this area has the capacity to welcome new arrivals, that they're welcome and needed. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Cuyahoga County, um, you know, has has long sort of welcomed uh, more immigrants, and um, we seem to be growing. Uh, uh, you know, in 2012, I think um, 6.5 percent of the county's uh, population were immigrants, and um, that's grown to 7.6 percent on the latest uh, uh, 2022 data. And we're actually being uh, nationally recognized. We're one of uh, just a handful of other cities uh, that. Um, have been recognized as um, doing more to help um, incoming uh, immigrants. So it, it just seems like another step in the direction of of uh, really welcoming uh, those folks into our community. Welcoming isn't just, um, you know, glad you're in the neighborhood, here's a bunt cake. Uh-huh. Uh, a welcome center in this case is really attaching uh, services, connecting services to people. You imagine if you're coming to the country, if there's a language barrier or just simply you're coming to a new place, how do you access all the possible services that are there, now we would see that they'd all be in one place. Yeah, it's this this really nice like continuation of of, you know, once people get here, it's it's so easily to like lose that grasp on on folks. And obviously they you know, they have their own communities that pop up and their own connections, but to have a central place where they can, you know, get all of the services they need is is huge.
Glenn, pro-Palestinian supporters this week again filled Cleveland City Council's chambers to demonstrate for a ceasefire resolution, which council says it has no intention of passing. Council created a new protocol with the guidance of the city law department to handle disruption at meetings, and this week the demonstration tested the limits of that protocol. People were removed from the chambers, as they yeah. are, uh, as the law says they would do, but they kind of had a loophole there. They stood right outside in the hallway and disrupted the meeting anyway. Yeah, a little bit of an end around. It seems like once uh, Council President Blaine Griffin started to you know, bang the gavel, call for order, and put that protocol in place, the demonstrators went outside council chambers and continued to demonstrate and continued to chant and continued to do you know, what they were there to do. And it was difficult to hear. The council's trying to get business done, whatever. And there were council members who were getting up and talking to law enforcement as the proceedings were going on, basically saying, hey, I can't hear. Hey, what can we do about this? You know, things like that. And the protesters are saying, hey, we're pretty well organized and you're not going to stop us from from demonstrating and for asking for uh, and from asking for this resolution. They say they want to be heard and they certainly were heard there following the protocols that were put in place. So the question is, will there be further protocols? Will it be something like you're removed from the president pres, uh, premises of City Hall? Yeah. It, and Griffin said, basically, I control this chamber. Once they're outside, it's for law enforcement to deal with. And then that kind of becomes a question again of, you know, I I hate to use the phrase First Amendment zone because I don't particularly care for it. You know, that has some uh, connotations with it as well. But Griffin saying, I control this chamber. Once the people are out of the chamber, that's for law enforcement to deal with. Now the question is, how will law enforcement deal with it if they're disrupting council business uh, and and distracting from, from that process? All right, we'll continue following that. Our Abby Marshall is at those meetings. A major arts event planned for next year has been canceled. The directors of the Front International Cleveland Triennial for Contemporary Art announced this week the third edition planned for 2025 has been scrapped. Fundraising lagged. The previous iterations brought global participation from artists and venues across Northeast Ohio. So is it money, Glenn? certainly seems like it and the desire to make this it's like uh, go big or go home to use a cliche again sorry um but you know fred bidwell basically uh, who is the founder and executive director of this says the idea from the beginning was to be bold be ambitious do something at a world world-class level and it seems like you know they're unwilling to kind of you know re- reduce that uh, the next iteration of the three-month art festival required 5.5 million dollars Funding priorities have changed over the last few years, according to Bidwell. Uh, some funders are shifting resources away from arts and culture and more toward things like you know, social justice, community development, health and welfare. So it just didn't seem like the money was there for them to pull this off in the way that they wanted to. By the way, at the meeting of Community Arts and Culture this week that Kabir Bhatia, yesterday Kabir Bhatia, uh, covered, there was discussion that there still could be a ballot item coming up in November to extend the cigarette tax to fund art. So we'll keep a, a, an eye on that and how that might pan out, whether it affects something like this, not specifically this, uh, the triennial, but, but perhaps other funding that you were just discussing. Moving on to public health, agencies in Northeast Ohio and nationwide are dealing with an increase in syphilis cases. Good news is it's treatable and curable. Bad news is a sexually transmitted disease has been on the rise since 2019, according to the Cleveland Department of Public Health. Taylor, you covered this story. A number of cases in Northeast Ohio, especially in Cuyahoga County, went up quite steeply and are higher than the already going up national average. Yeah, I mean, this seems to be the trend across the country um, with syphilis specifically. Um, The CDC has really been alarmed at how much the rates are increasing, uh, and particularly congenital syphilis is on the rise. 
Um, and so a reason for that is apparently, um, you know, syphilis used to be, uh, you know, more prevalent, at least in our community, uh, a few years back among uh, the community of men who have sex with men. Um, uh, you know, that's that's where we were seeing these um, these rates. But now it's it's spreading to heterosexual couples um, and and spilling over into um, pregnant women and, and their babies. Um, so real concern there. So what do public health experts say needs to happen to reduce cases? And what are the challenges they have? Screening and sexual education. So another reason we're seeing STD rates go up is um, safe sex use uh, or safe sex practices. Uh, condom use uh, have, have um, gone uh, by the wayside. So there's a lot of, you know, providers are talking with their patients more about how do you have sex? You know, what what do you do? That kind of a thing. Um, and then uh, on the screening side, um, you know, doctors are, you know, already sort of more aware of this and they're um, screening pregnant women more in prenatal care. Uh, you know, where they're trying to screen at least three times during the pregnancy, whereas um, it used to be common that you just screen um, you know, in the first couple of appointments. Um, so that's going on. And even uh, now in emergency rooms, uh, they're looking at screening pregnant women that come in regardless of what they're in for. All right. We're going to hit our last story or near our last story now. You may have heard by now about uh, parts of Ohio, including Cleveland and Akron, that are going to be in the direct path of April's total solar eclipse, the path of totality. We had a discussion here. By the way, we're going to be going out in early April, the week before this event, and talking to folks at a community tour event. Uh, we'll give you more details on that later, but that's going to be at the Lake Erie, uh, the Great Lake Science Center. The event is expected, the event meaning the eclipse itself, to bring an influx of people to Ohio on April 8th. And businesses and other agencies are planning big viewing events and parties. I know Ideastream has something going on. Emergency management officials are putting safety in the spotlight, too. And Summit County officials discussed the eclipse planning this week with a panel hosted by the county executive. And the question is, uh, Glenn, the message from the planning group was basically stay home and enjoy the eclipse from your home. I mean, probably don't climb up on the roof, but get the safety glasses, go in your backyard, <laughs> go somewhere where it's open. But they're concerned about traffic and other safety factors, something we've addressed here, but it's it's being reemphasized and will, I think, up until April 8th. It's amazing. I mean, we've been talking about this for months and still I was talking to somebody in public relations the other day talking about one of the businesses they represent as a hotel. And it's like, hey, if you're thinking of staying pretty good any other time other yeah. you know 400 bucks a night and it's already sold out don't don't yeah. come april 8th uh or or you know seventh uh, yes yeah, so don't come april 7th you know around that or time 8th. it's it's uh it's quite interesting uh to hear you know how uh the crush of people uh, that are going to come. And as you said, people are advising like, hey, just, you know, kind of stay home. Uh, don't Be safe. Yeah. And get those classes. Uh, the Guardians, by the way, will hold their home opener on the day of the eclipse. Now the yes, club has will. announced. They finally <laughs> announced, Karen, the first pitch will be at 510. So you have plenty of time to get to Cleveland. And bundle up because it's going to be a cold one, all that. So, <laughs> but well, I'm excited. I hope cold and clear sky. That would be yeah, there we go. That's, that's all we need. All right, Karen, all we need is you every Friday. Appreciate you being here. <laughs> it's great to be here. All right, good to have you with us as well, Taylor Wisner. Always a good time. And Glenn Forbes, we'll see you upstairs in just a couple minutes, figure out what we're going to do for the day. It sounds good. We've got some extra time, and uh, we'll figure out 
we'll try to figure out when Biden's actually going to speak. That's what I was talking about yesterday. <laughs> How question. late is he going to be? Right. That's the question. Is he going to chopper from uh, from <laughs> right, Pittsburgh? Right. And uh, yeah, we'll be in place regardless. All right, for you to get the last word on today's topic, send an email to soi at ideastream.org or on Twitter and now X at Sound of Ideas. You can follow me at Mike Mackin at Michael McIntyre. And we're going to leave you with one of this year's nominees for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that was announced. We did a whole show on it with some great experts, including Amanda Rabinowitz and uh, Kabir Bhatia. This is Mary J. Blige singing Family Affair. If you miss any part of this program, find us online or listen to the Sound of Ideas podcast, which you can get on any podcast app. You can also hear a rebroadcast tonight at 9 on 89.7 WKSU. Check out the television version, Ideas, tonight at 7.30 on WBIZ-PBS. And the team is off Monday for President's Day. We'll talk to you again on Tuesday. I'm Mike McIntyre. Thanks so much for listening, and stay safe. Just party with me. Let loose and set your body free. Leave your situations at the door. So when you step inside, jump on the floor.